morning to everyone. I slept much better last night. I actually did sleep in the tent. I, the first night I slept in the tent on the floor, and the second night I went home since I live right here in town, and I slept on bed at home, and last night I slept on the floor again in the tent, and it was, it was good. I actually slept a while last night. So, are you enjoying camp meeting? Um, one of my favorite things to do is camping. I love going out into the wilderness and, and camping. <clears throat> um, actually, my boys are both here with a friend, and, and uh, they could testify to the fact that, that uh, I love camping. I just don't like the lack of sleep. That's all. So... One of our favorite things to do as a family is to go out and use the canoes or, you know, set up a tent somewhere out in the middle of nowhere and and make our campfire. And it's fun to, you know, work with the food over the fire or a little camp stove. And uh, life's a lot simpler when you're out camping, at least for those of us who use tents. Um, it just so happens that there are those who use the RVs, and that's fine. I think that's luxurious out in the middle of nowhere, and I like that too. Um, so anyway, I love camping. It's rejuvenating to my soul. I actually uh, feel refreshed and energized. If I can sit in a little camp chair along a lake shore somewhere, I don't care if there's mosquitoes buzzing around my head. It really, you know, I'll just put on some bug spray and ignore them. Um, It's really worth it to me. I love it. So um, I find myself, uh, I don't know, it's something about the silence, something about hearing a, a ground squirrel making noises. It's something about hearing the Stellar's jay squawking and and uh, making noise. And there's something about seeing a bear off in the trees moving across. I just like being out like that because it's peaceful, it's natural, and it's uh, simple. That's the word. It's simple. I like it. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about camping today, uh, but uh, let's have prayer as we open the Word of God. <clears throat> Dear Lord, I thank you for your Word. I thank you for giving it to us to speak to our hearts, and I pray that as we open it up once again to look a little deeper into the life of Nehemiah and his experience at Jerusalem, that your Spirit would guide our thoughts and minds into what you would have us understand today. We love you, Lord, and we Look forward to uh, being able to talk about these things face-to-face someday soon. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday we finished off with chapter 7. A long list of names, but we did see that it was an organizational thing and and, uh, the chapter wasn't as boring, perhaps, as it could have been. It was a short, brief look at chapter 7. But today we're going to jump right into chapter 8. The last verse of chapter 7 said, 
So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nethanim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Everything settled down. Jerusalem just represented the rebuilding of their homeland. And uh, we realize that now the people are moving back into their little settlements, their villages. Um, And it's beginning to take on a resemblance of a normal life. Why do I say life? Those of you who have been here, you know I'm talking about the city of Jerusalem, but I'm also talking about a broken and ruined life. It's been rebuilt. Things have progressed to the point where it's beginning to look normal. Have you ever met someone who's gone through drug rehab or AA and they've, they've conquered uh, and, and appear to have gotten a handle on, on some of the brokenness of their life? And uh, they're beginning to look normal. I, you know, I use that term loosely for some of us. And uh, uh, it's the condition now of the city of Jerusalem. It's beginning to reach a point where it's looking normal. People are living there. People are starting to uh, form their neighborhoods again. And, and, you know, life is taking shape once again after complete, uh, complete destruction, complete hopelessness, complete uh, captivity. Uh, There's been no hope, no positive outlook at all for this land. And now it's starting to look good again. You know, whenever a person comes back to the Lord, or comes to the Lord, period, (coughs) uh, it's a beautiful thing. It's really neat to see how, how things change in a person's life. It was exciting to see the change happen in Jerusalem too. And that's what happens when the Spirit of God works. And God and the angels sing when things like this happen, especially in the spiritual aspect of a person's life. Um, In chapter 8, it says that all the people gathered together, in verse 1, as one man. All the people gathered together as one man. Very interesting concept. And they gathered together in the open square that was in front of the water gate. Um, And they told Ezra, the scribe. Here's where Ezra comes in. You know Ezra is the book that precedes the book of Nehemiah. And um, historians, biblical historians actually say that Ezra and Nehemiah are the first and second books of Ezra. Many people have believed that. So a lot of people believe that Nehemiah himself wrote the book of Nehemiah. Others believe that Nehemiah actually took notes and kept a journal, sort of like a uh, diary. Uh, And Ezra, the scribe, used Nehemiah's notes to produce the book of Nehemiah. Others still believe that Nehemiah wrote part of the book of Nehemiah, and Ezra wrote other parts of the book of Nehemiah. At any rate, Ezra and Nehemiah were friends. They knew each other. They worked together. Ezra led, um, with the help of Zerubbabel, you heard that name before, led the first return to Jerusalem. 
to begin rebuilding the temple. Okay, So now the city of Jerusalem under Nehemiah's watch is having its walls reconstructed. Okay, The temple is already set. There was, however, a gate in the temple. If you have your, your first handout um, on the back, there was a gate on the temple, on the temple itself, that was being rebuilt. I think there's the Mifkad gate and one other. What was the other one? I forget. Is there a gate on the... Is it the East Gate? East Gate? Thank you. Yes, they, they were uh, right close to the temple. And uh, Ezra actually was involved in the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah was involved in rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem and those gates, including the Mifkad Gate and the East Gate, uh, closer, right across from the entrance to the temple. So Ezra comes into the story, and he stands up, to bring the book, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. The book of the law of Moses. We refer to that as the Pentateuch, I believe it is. The five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Bring this before the people. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from... How long did he read from this thing? He read from the book of the law in front of the crowd of people. You know, we have a problem these days. Sitting or standing, doesn't matter, and listening to the word of God being read. Why do we have a problem with this? Because our society is full of Taco Bells and McDonald's and microwaves and it's a fast-paced society. We can drive through and get our food. We can uh, <clears throat> get things right now. We can watch TV and how, I don't know how long the average uh, picture stays on the screen. I think it's like 1.2 seconds. That's the average length of time that an image, any one image, remains on the screen. Um, In fact, they're coming up with new creative ways to advertise things, and they'll put an image with no sound. Sometimes you see these things happen on TV. An image with no sound, not changing, for about three to five seconds. There's five seconds. And it does something now because our society is move, move, move. And suddenly when a pause happens, it gets our attention. Like, what was that? You know? And so it's sort of a opposite direction tactic that people are using to get people's attention now. Um, we live in a fast-paced society. We want gratification now. Things are happening so fast and entertainment is all around us. We watch TV, we watch movies, and it's always changing. How, we wonder, could these people sit, it says, from morning until midday listening to the Word of God being read? That's amazing. That's amazing. It says, so Ezra the scribe, oh, 
before it says that, verse 3, it says, he read from it from morning till midday, before the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. It was gripping. It was old. It was the old, old story. And it thrilled their hearts. They were in rapt attention to the word of God. This is great. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform in verse 4 of wood, which I'm in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 4 platform of wood which they had made for this purpose and beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah. I'm not going to go through all these names. All these men it lists them all out all the way through the end of verse 4 and verse 5 Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was standing above all the people and when he opened it all the people stood up. I was sharing uh some thoughts from this this uh, passage of Scripture for a sermon at the Heavenly Valley Church here in South Lake Tahoe uh, a couple years back. And before I did the sermon, there's all the preliminaries, if you know what I mean, the, the Scripture reading, the, the praise and prayer time, and the, you know. And we had a guest that day who offered to participate in our service. He, so we actually had one of our platform participants missing that day. So we said, hey, that, that works out really good. Um, would you be willing to read the scripture reading for today? He said, sure. I don't remember what the, what the scripture was that day offhand. But he stood up to, to read the scripture. And you know what he did? I was going to be sharing some thoughts from this chapter, you know, uh, the, the story of Ezra standing up before the people. That sermon, I was going to include these thoughts. And this man stood up and he said, Back in the days of Nehemiah, when the word of God was opened to be read, all the people stood up. So would you stand with me, he said. And he invited the people to stand with him as he opened the word of God and read. And I'm sitting there on the platform going, it, it really hit me. He and I hadn't talked about this. He had no clue what I was going to be preaching about. And the scripture reading that he was going to read had nothing to do, well, it did in my mind. I was going to tie it together. Had no, there were no hints there to tell him what I was going to be preaching about. And I just thought that was really neat. And you know, the people in the congregation stood up and he read the scripture. And I have to tell you, Sitting there on the platform or standing on the platform, I just was impacted with a sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It was powerful. Not just because of the coincidence, I quote unquote coincidence of him having the people stand up. Not just because of that, but because... There is something, and this is just food for thought. Just, just think about this. Maybe, maybe consider it, perhaps, for, for your worship service, wherever you go, that maybe when the Word of God is opened for a reading, a reading of the Word of God before the people, to invite everyone to stand. 
it's, it was a special experience for us. Nehemiah read from the word of God, and all the people stood up, it says in verse 5. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen! Amen! I love it. And it puts it in King James, it puts it in with an exclamation mark. And they said, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Amen! Uh, something in the hearts of the people was full of adoration for this God. Uh, homage to the God of heaven. And they raised their hands saying, Amen. I would have loved to have been there. What a crowd. And they bowed their heads after they said amen to the reading of the word of God. They bowed their heads with their faces to the ground. I'm going to ask for a couple of volunteers again today. Maybe the boys could help up here. You want to help hand out some pieces of paper here? I've got my hand out for today. Uh, and I didn't take the time to open it first, sorry. There we go. Let's see if that covers everyone. Thanks, guys. Um, This is an experience, a, a gathering of the people together. And I love camp meeting because it's a gathering of God's people together. Once a year. I love it. Some of you perhaps have gone to more than one camp meeting this year. And I would, I would love that. That would just be so cool. Uh, but to go to camp meeting once a year is a special experience to me because it's a gathering of God's people together to worship God, to learn and, and to have the word brought out. But more than that, there's an experience in camp meeting that has something simple about it. The life during this week of camp meeting is simple, is it not? You eat, you sleep, and you fellowship. And you receive nuggets of truth from the Word of God all week long. I believe that is an essential experience of a Christian. I just think it's absolutely needed in the life of a Christian. So, in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, I believe we see an example of what camp meeting, one of the first camp meetings, looked like. There's some more over here on the right that needs some handouts. Excuse me. Uh, At the top of your handout, from the the, uh, manuscript releases, back in 1893, there's a quote. They did not, this is, this is uh, a quote of Ellen White, and she was talking about those who do not attend camp meeting. They do not see why they need to go to camp meeting. The common duties of life are all absorbing, and it does not meet their inclination to go out from their work and homes and be put, in, put to inconvenience to obtain light and strength through seeking the Lord with their brethren. We are working to arouse them. May the Lord help us. This is an interesting thing that that she wrote back in 1893. You know what she's talking about. Uh, When she says, 
the common duties of life are all absorbing. It is. The common duties of life are all absorbing. Do we really have time in our schedule to set aside for camp meeting? No. We're all busy. We're too busy. And and it doesn't meet our inclination usually to, to leave our work and leave our homes and be put to some inconvenience to obtain light and strength. But you know what Jesus said? <clears throat> I believe is in Mark chapter 6, if I remember right. Jesus said, come apart before you come apart. He did. He did. You know what coming apart means? You know, tearing the hair out, uh, uh, frazzled experience. And Jesus says, come apart, that is, come aside before you come apart. Okay? Come ye yourselves apart, he says, and rest a while. That's beautiful. That's, Jesus was talking about camp meeting. He was talking about lots of things like that. For me, it's it's camping. I, I love camp meeting. But other parts of the year, I love camping. I'll go out to the, the boonies somewhere, and I could be all alone. And and I remember setting up my little army cot uh, at the top of a mountain pass in the LaSalle Mountains of Utah, and just, just the cot I laid out and put a a sleeping bag down on it, and then my other sleeping bag on top of that, so I used one for padding, and and I slept out under the stars. And the temperature got down to, I think, 11 degrees above zero that night. I woke up in the morning, and everything was covered with a thick layer of frost because the fog had, you know, the clouds had rolled over the mountain through the night. And um, But I was toasty warm. I was in a uh, a nice sleeping bag, and and uh, I'm telling you to lay there, falling asleep that night, seeing the stars because the cl- the clouds hadn't rolled in till middle of the night sometime. Seeing the stars so close, not a light for many miles in the area, so you could just see the stars crystal clear, and the silence. There was no wind. No breeze in the treetops. I was surrounded by pine trees. And it was just dead silent. I just love that. It is... Oh, I'm just thinking about it right now. It's, <laughs> it's uh, energizing in a way. So, Jesus says, come apart before you come apart. Chapter 8, you can see there in your notes... Nehemiah represents the spiritual leadership of the congregation. The book of the law is brought in the first couple of verses. The book of the law is opened. Ezra has the invocation, and how do the people respond? Amen, amen. Verses 7 and 8. There's another list of men here. Uh, The the leaders, the uh, you might say the elders or... Or uh, the ministerial team, you might say, helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. There was an organization about this. There was a, a spread of the crowd that was just extensive. And we have just a few here today, but 
The crowd was extensive that day. And just like you're sitting here, everybody was in their place. And there's an organization about camp meeting. And I saw this in this chapter. In verse 8, they read distinctly from the book. I personally don't believe, and I'm thanking my high school English teacher for this. Uh, She was a mean teacher. I hated her. She was so hard on us kids. And um, in high school class, it didn't, she didn't make a whole lot of sense, and we tried to help her understand um, where we were coming from, but she didn't get it. And um, she was really, really hard on us. And she told us to tell, stand up in front of the class and tell a story. And she had the story all prepared for us. So we got up and we're looking at the story, and this is a dumb story. It's a story about, I don't even remember to this day what it was. It had something about white picket fences and boxes of different sizes and different things like that. And you know what she made us do? She made us exaggerate everything we said in the story. So when it was a big box, we said it was a big box and we had to exaggerate with our voices and in the classroom and it was terribly embarrassing. But I have her to thank because here in the Word of God, we can see the importance of reading distinctly. I would mumble and murmur my words and drop off the ends of my senses so you can understand what I was saying. You know, and I didn't want to talk a lot because you know, just wasn't like that. It's not. It's painful to sit and listen to somebody reading the Word of God, especially, and hear them reading and you know saying the things in a monotone voice and going on and on and on and on and never stopping, uh, or or never changing, uh, not reading distinctly. I think. The word today is enunciation and expression and uh, with feeling. And so I have learned to enjoy reading the Word of God. I was just talking to my friend Bracey about the fact that I like to read the Word of God as if these stories are real. Because they are real. This is real life. This really happened. And when we get caught up in the ho-hum, humdrum, blasé way of reading or presenting the Word of God, who of any person, I was going to say young people, but I heard once that young people are not the only ones who get bored. Young people, after a certain while, if you're boring... Do you enjoy hearing a boring sermon? No. Not even grown-ups like to hear a boring sermon. So, young people, am I right, guys? Young people, when when they hear a boring sermon, after a few minutes, they're looking at their paper or playing with a rock or, or poking each other or talking at each other, you know, and you've lost them. This is what I heard one time. But the same guy said that you haven't just lost them, you've lost the adults at the exact same time. 
It's just the adults keep looking at you. Right? The adults keep staring. And um, so we don't like something boring. They, they read distinctly from the book and in the law of God, and they gave the sense. They, they conveyed a sense of what the Word of God was saying. They conveyed the sense. Oh, I like that. The people got a feeling of what the Word of God was talking about. It came to life for them. I remember as a sophomore in academy, my Bible teacher brought the book. Our, t- our textbook for Bible class that year was the book Patriarchs and Prophets. He brought the book to life for a bunch of sophomore high schoolers. He brought it to life. The stories of Moses and Noah and the children of Israel and Joshua and all these stories came to life for us. I love that. Verse 9 indicates that the people took everything to heart. Why do I know this? It says halfway through the verse, they told them that the, uh, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. Why did they tell them not to mourn or weep? Because it says all the people were weeping. All the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. I believe Nehemiah presented the words of the law in a way that Jesus would have presented it. Because when Jesus presented the words of the law, he said, you've heard that it has been said in Matthew 5. You've heard it said this way. Uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, whoever slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus said that you've heard that it has been said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if men... If you even look on a woman to lust after her in your heart, you have committed adultery already. Right after that, by the way, you know what Jesus said? It's if your eye, that is, if you're looking at things that are not appropriate, he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. It's better for you to enter heaven maimed, blind, than to be lost forever. Um, And it's just like that. And it hit me deeply when I read that passage of Scripture. Matthew 5 is so full of things that... It's, it's a personal conviction. It's a movement of the Holy Spirit in my heart and life that convicts me of sin. And then I see things like Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. And I realize that David was praying that prayer after committing the most atrocious 
of sins. And it breaks my heart. And I'll be honest with you, I've, I've laid there in bed or, or sat there in my car and cried. Cried real tears because I realized how, how utterly separate from God my life is. I've cried because <clears throat> at times, as Ellen White said in page 90 of Sanctified Life, at times, a deep sense of our unworthiness will send a thrill of terror through the soul. I've cried because the devil has lied to me, told me that I wasn't any good, told me that all the good I was didn't amount to anything. You know, the devil likes to quote Scripture. And he's quoted Scripture to me using Isaiah 64, 6, where it says, all of the things you do right, are filthy rags. Now, was the devil right? Absolutely. Because he's quoting Scripture. Scripture is correct. All of the right things I can do are as filthy rags. Absolutely. But that's where he wants me to stop. That's where the devil wants me to just drop off and quit. Everything I do right amounts to nothing. So what's the point of even trying? Might as well just end it all. No. we got to go beyond that and realize that with Paul we can say, I am crucified with Christ. That is my old life of sin. That's my old man of self. He's dead. He's gone and buried. And I'd like to keep him buried because I am a new creature. I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Paul said, the life I live in the flesh... I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's what it's all about. Um, The people's hearts are convicted of sin in verse 9. Then He said to them in verse 10, Go your ways, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Uh, notice he doesn't tell them to fast and pray. Go and eat. Wipe those tears from your eyes and rejoice. Today is a holy day. This is what Nehemiah is telling the people, or Ezra. Today is a holy day. Today is a day of rejoicing. Stop crying. The devil wants us to get to the point where we realize our own sinfulness and keep us there. Bawling our eyes out, laying in the dirt, groveling in our our despondency. And the Lord says, stop crying. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Way down there in... In uh, verse 14, they found something particular. When the law was being read, they discovered something that they hadn't noticed in a long time. In fact, most of the people here didn't even know that it was such a big deal. But they found something that stood out. 
It says they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should have camp meeting every year. I'm serious. It says it right there. It says they should dwell in tents during the Feast of the Seven Months. And, and the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities, that is, put the bulletin inserts about camp meeting in your bulletins months in advance and announce that this is going to happen. Go up to the mountains, to Tahoe, and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees. They didn't have nylon and ripstop and all the fabrics. So they used all this other stuff to build their tents, build their Booths. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof. You know, it might do us good to uh, go out camping and have a big camp meeting somewhere out in the mountains and just everybody divide up and, and collect lots of evergreen bows and, and logs and stuff and construct some shelters and we all have a survival week focused on the Word of God, reading and studying together, hiding out in our little shelters, off in the, the boonies somewhere. Well, pathfinders, okay. All right, I'm with you. I'm with you. All right. It says, then the people went out. So the whole assembly, in verse 17, of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. It had been a long time since the last camp meeting. And the Spirit was moving in the hearts of the people. And there was very great gladness in verse 17. I like that. There was very great gladness. It doesn't say that the people were joyful. It doesn't say the people were glad. It says that there was great gladness. In fact, my Bible says there was very great gladness. This is a good time. And it is full of the movement of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. There is something happening in the people's hearts. And my prayer is today that there's something happening in your heart right now. That the Holy Spirit is, is doing something personal in your life. That's my prayer. <clears throat> Chapter 9. We realize that there is a setting apart that takes place. Um, and as is with us today, we need to recognize that when our hearts are convicted of sin, we should separate ourselves then from worldly influences. Jesus put it this way. Lord, I pr Father, I pray the, the, what did he say in John 17? He was praying to his Father in heaven, and he said, they are in the world, but not of the world. We're here. We are in the world. But we are to separate ourselves from worldly influences. That's what they did in Nehemiah's day. 
The city has been rebuilt. A life has been renewed. What needs to happen after this life has been renewed? Uh, uh, the next thing that happens is the life begins to look normal. Come back to a sense of normalcy. And the, 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 the next thing that sets in is this person, this new life, recognizes their awful state, their their awful condition without Christ in their lives. And they realize their sinfulness. Did you know that we can't even get to the point of receiving and enjoying the benefits of salvation without realizing our own sinfulness? Did you realize that that you can't even get to that point without recognizing that we desperately need Jesus in our lives? Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you're poor in money, what do you need? Money. If you're poor in spirit, what do you need? If you realize that you need the spirit, blessed are you. But, oh, that's easy to say, isn't it? When we get to the point of realizing our need of the spirit, that is personalizing it. We we look inward and we go, I need the Spirit of God. I am lacking, desperately lacking the Spirit of God in my life. And we realize that. Is that easy? Is that a pleasant experience to go through, to recognize how awful our condition really is? It's not easy. But it is blessed. There's something beautiful about falling down at the feet of Jesus. There's something wonderful about coming to Him with our disparity. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. It's, I am not suggesting that it's an easy thing. But we shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes. That's going to happen. 1 John, you know 1 John 1, 9. It's the last verse of 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The very next verse is the first verse of chapter 2. 1 John 2, 1 says, If anyone sins, he has an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Oh, it's so full of hope. It's so full of good news. In um, verse 2 of chapter 9, we see that the Israelites separated themselves uh, from all foreigners. This, this simply represents the separation of ourselves from worldly influences. Are you with me? The second part of that verse tells us that they stood up and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They confessed. If we confess, He will forgive and cleanse. The book of the law is read some more in verse 3. And then there's more confession of sin at the end of verse 3. They worship 
It just comes when 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 the spirit moves in this way and and the people are worshiping together and the book of the law is read and the people confess confess the the, the urge to confess and urge to worship comes naturally. In verses 5 through 38 we see a prayer and I'd like to take just the next five minutes or so, and read this prayer with you. This is the Levites, Joshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodijah, Shebaniah, and Pethathiah, or Pethahiah. There we go. They stood up. And said this. So the fact that all of these men stood up and said this tells me that this was written. This was written and they spoke it together. It'd be kind of neat to have, you know, eight men to stand up here and read this in unison. It might be kind of neat. But this is what they did Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever. And ever, ever, blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. This is, this is how I feel at this moment, my friends. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts. The earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You've performed your words. You are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself, as it is this day, and you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and their persecutors you threw into the deep. As a stone into the mighty waters you threw them. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. The people are appreciating this at this point. They're realizing they've forgotten the whole story. They've forgotten how God has blessed them in the past. They're afraid for everything around them. They're afraid for their futures simply because they've forgotten God's gracious leading in their past history. So, I continue on. Lord, you came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances. Fair ordinances. Ordinances that make sense. And true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in and possess the land which you swore to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly 
hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks. And in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. Stupid people. Yet, here we are, liberated from the same bondage of sin. And what do we do? We go back to it like a dog to its vomit. We, I heard one man say that the Lord throws all our sins into the depths of the sea. The Bible tells us that. And then you find us out there in a little rowboat with a long fishing line drawing them back up. We can't really say stupid people, can we, without pointing most of our fingers at ourselves. <clears throat> but you are God, <laughs> ready to pardon, gracious and merciful. This is the God that I've discovered in my life, my friends. A gracious and merciful God. <sighs> Slow to anger, abundant in kindness. And Lord, you didn't forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt and worked great provocations. Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. They deserved it. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't even wear out, and their feet didn't swell from all the walking. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sion and the land of the king of Heshbon, the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they, did, that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were a stupid people. They were disobedient and rebelled against you cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself and they worked great provocations. Therefore, you did this. Here we all are back in the promised land after being captives. Therefore, you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven. And according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. 
Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they would have dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. How many times have I fallen down and realized that I've just done this stupid thing again? I thought I had victory over that and here I am falling down again. And then I hear the same words of Jesus saying, come unto me. Ah, ah. It's so powerful to understand that the Spirit of God draws our hearts back to himself again and again. Ah, I keep losing my place. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them or forsake them, for you are God. You are gracious and merciful. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty and awesome God, who keeps his covenants and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you. All this trouble that's come up upon us now, our kings and our princes, our priests and prophets, our fathers and on all your people, this trouble has come. Don't let this trouble seem small. Lord, would you would you take into careful consideration the burdens that we have on ourselves in our lives? From the days of the kings of Assyria till this day, we've had trouble. However, you are just in all that has befallen us. We've brought it on our own heads, in other words, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. We deserve everything we get. I admit this, Lord. I deserve it. Neither our kings, nor our princes, our priests, nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom, or in the many good things you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them. Nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today. In the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are, servants in this land. We're not rulers in this land. We're servants in this land, and this is a burden to us. We should be victors, not in bondage anymore. And yet, oh, and it yields much increase to the kings that are set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. He has just reminded the Lord of all the times that his mercy and grace has been shown forth. He says, Lord, would you do it again? Would you be merciful and kind to us one more time? Because of all this, we are making this a sure covenant and we are writing it down. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests Seal it now. Tell me, is this a powerful prayer or what? Oh, I love it. Chapter 10, we see a sense of dedication, commitment, 
that follows on the heels of this conviction that is set in their hearts. It is a deep conviction that has set in their hearts. And the people become determined and committed to following the Lord. Verse 29, it actually gives you a list of all those who placed their seal on the document that we just read. They wrote it down, remember? And there's a list of names all the way through verse 27 of people that put their seal on that document. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, gatekeepers, singers, Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from evil influences, everyone who had knowledge and understanding joined in verse 29 with their brethren and their nobles and entered into a curse and an oath. This simply means, don't get thrown off by the word curse, it just simply means they entered into a binding agreement. A binding agreement. To walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and His ordinances and His statutes. There are four areas now that I'd like to point out to you. And at the bottom of your handout, you can scribble these in if you'd like to. There are four areas. The first one you can find in verse 30. Number one, marriage. There are four areas of special need in our lives for dedication. When a group of people like we have sitting here at camp meeting, these people were at camp meeting, by the way, When a group of people sitting at camp meeting like this come together and the Spirit of God creates conviction in their hearts, there comes four areas, at least in the story of Nehemiah, four areas of special need, need for dedication. Number one is marriage, verse 30. We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. Marriage was the number one point of commitment in this new life. This is an important point. How crucial is it to maintain a healthy marriage in Christ? It is Top of this list, anyway. Number two, in verse 31, if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath. You know, by the way, this goes along with the order of importance in the creation story. Did you know that after God created man, that he created for the man a Help meet a woman. And they were married. Then what came? The Sabbath. It's the same order. The Sabbath day is an area of special need for dedication in our lives. Number three, verses 32 and 33 indicate that the third Item would be the local church budget. Does that bring a smile to your face? The local church budget. Why on earth would that be in this list? But look, it says there in verses 32 and 33, and we also made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel 
for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons and set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work that has to go on in the house of our God. The local church budget, my friends, is an area of special need for dedication. Not for the church leadership, but this is, this is the people are to dedicate this to the Lord. The fourth area we find in verses 35 through 38, tithe. We just talked about setting aside money for the local church budget, didn't we? Don't be mistaken, that is not tithe money. Because Nehemiah separates it. He says in verses 35 through 38, And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord. Emphasis on first fruits. First fruits. First fruits. To bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God. To bring the first fruits of our dough, the offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our, tithes of all our lands to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithe. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. There's a whole structural thing there, an instruction for the leadership and how they should handle the tithe monies as they come in, where it should go. Tithe, the understanding of the people of that day was 10%. That's my understanding too. And when they gave their 10% to the Lord, then there was one-tenth of that money that was set aside for other things. That was up to the leadership of the church to do. I find that just very fascinating. I know there are people today who have a problem with this understanding. But I'm just reading from the Word of God. This is Nehemiah reading the book of the law of God. I'm not going to stand here and try to twist it into some other understanding. The four areas are marriage, Sabbath sacredness, the local church budget, and our tithes and offerings. You know, in not giving, we miss out on a blessing. We are the ones who miss out on the blessing. I could have chosen this last December to just stick to the giving plan that my wife and I had originally and miss on the incredible blessing that I had the next month. We would have still gotten the, the raise, perhaps. Maybe that was just purely a God thing. But it wouldn't have been as special as it was because of our choice to make a change in our giving plan. Um, years ago, we knew that in two weeks we would receive a check. We knew that when that check came in, we would have enough to give back to the Lord. And, and so we had this uh, uh, $80 uh, that we had 
we really needed to use it. But it was for tithe. But we knew in just a week and a half, two weeks, we would get this other check and we'd be able to take the $80 out again and take care of that, get it taken care of. My wife and I talked about it and we're like, we've got to take care of this bill now. And this is all we have left. And it's the money we've set aside to give this weekend in the offering plate for our tithe. We're not wanting to rob God because we'll pay it back as soon as we get the next check. We couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. So we decided, no, we're going to give it. I don't know what's going to happen with this bill. I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know what kind of consequences we're going to get. But if we do get some kind of hardship because of it, it's our own fault anyway because we didn't plan properly anyway. And why do we need to push it off onto the Lord to take care of a problem we brought it on our own heads? We submitted that to the Lord. We said, Lord, we, we did this to ourselves. We deserve whatever we get. But we're going to choose to stay faithful to you and leave the rest up to you. A guest was staying at our house that evening. He got in at 4 o'clock and... Uh, <clears throat> He was going to leave at about 4 o'clock the next morning to catch a flight. And so we spent some time with him that evening, knowing that we're not going to see him in the morning. I wasn't going to get up at 4 o'clock to say goodbye to him. And uh, next day, we went in to take the bedclothes off of his bed, and there was two $100 bills laying there. Who pays $200 just for a bed to sleep? It's not even a fancy room. You know, uh, what a blessing. What a blessing. Never once in our experience have my wife and I ever had the slightest hint of hardship because we chose to remain faithful to the Lord. Never once. In fact, the Bible says it really bluntly says the lord says prove me now herewith see if i will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing so you will not have room enough to receive it i didn't have the 625 dollars for rent the next month which is when we lived in colorado that month was so so tight we had cornbread beans and rice oh yes we did have some oats for oatmeal every morning We had no bananas. We had no cans of peaches in the cupboard. We had no uh, nothing, no raisins to put in the oatmeal. We had nothing in our cupboards. That Friday night, some friends of ours called and said, Hey, could we invite ourselves to join you for supper tonight? They're dear friends, and it was very unusual, actually, for them to ask to associate with us. We said, sure, come on over. They, they, we then decided we got to figure out how to stretch the meal. We're going to have um, some soup with the beans. We had a can of tomatoes we dumped in there. We went ahead, since it was only enough for our family, we went ahead and added about four or five cans worth of water to the mix. Mixed it up, added some more salt. I'm serious. It was, it was really hard. I was out of work for three months. We had no money. We had no food. I couldn't even drive down the road 
to get work because there was no more gas in the car. We were in a tough place, and I had three kids and a wife, and I was crying out to God, Lord, you've given me a responsibility as a father and husband to provide for my family, and I can't even do that. I'm such a loser. I'm serious. They came over. We had cornbread and the soup. No eggs in the cornbread. It was like cement. Um, But it tasted good. My wife makes great cornbread. Uh, We had a great supper, great fellowship with our friends, he and his wife and their little girl. He said, "Um, could you lend me a hand? I said, sure. What's... You know, I followed him outside. He opened the trunk of his car. The trunk was jam full, jam full of grocery bags, full of bananas and raisins and cans of fruit of all kinds and and a pineapple, a fresh pineapple. Those things are stinking expensive. They were like $4. We, got, we had more. What did the Bible say? See if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you will not have room enough to receive it. We did not have room in our cupboards for the food that they brought us that night. Honest. We filled the cupboard. It was just on one side of the wall anyway, but we filled the whole thing and we had food sitting out on the countertop. We had more food than we'd had in a long time. At the end of our conversation, at the end of family worship that night, they handed us an envelope. They said, could you open this after we leave? Could you wait till we leave? I said, how do I even take it after what you've done for us tonight? I I was blown away. And um, they left. We opened it up and there were six $100 bills in there. Mm-mm-mm. And we were this close to doubting the Lord's providence. Rent was the only bill that we had to have that month. It was taken care of just like that. God is so good. He's so merciful and I've gone the way of the Israelites so many times and gone back to my old bondage and and he's so gracious and he he blesses again. He brings me back. And he the walls and the gates of the city are rebuilt. My life is renewed once again. The Spirit of God. Come again tomorrow as we close the book of Nehemiah. It's going to be a powerful look at the closing chapters of Nehemiah. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I thank you for being so giving. And it's way beyond giving. It's just your kindness and your love and your grace and your mercy and your patience with us thick-headed human beings is just never-ending. And we, uh, today, Lord, we are amazed at your handiwork, your goodness. We're blown away by the fact that you will accept us back into your fold, into your arms once again. For we have wandered today, Lord. We have
We've gone our own way. We've gotten caught up in the concerns and issues of daily life and forgotten about you. We've allowed the devil to come in and tempt us and discourage us. Our walls have been broken down maybe already today. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness. I ask that you would wipe that away and help us to start once again new with you. Thank you, Lord. We love you today. We want to serve you, but we desperately need your help to do so. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.